So uh, what I'm going to ask you to do, uh, since morning church we have scripture readings and it uh, kind of helps set the stage, uh, we're going to have a scripture reading. It's a fairly long one. It's a piece of the life of Jesus. When we get to that place, I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes and listen while I read it the first time, and then we'll go back through it, okay? But uh, before we get there, uh, I just wanted to say that um, I have been to counseling. I don't know how many of you have ever gone to a counselor or needed a counselor, but I am one of those people. And um, one of the ways that counselors get at the things they need to get at uh, is kind of a tack that's called, in order to expose the heart, one must defend the mind. In order to expose the heart, one must defend the mind. Dan Allender and Larry Crabb are famous for teaching their students this style of counseling. And the idea is, if they can get you mad enough, what's inside of you will f- come bubbling out. They get it from Scripture. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, it's not an idea that originated with Larry Crabb and Dan Allender. It's actually an idea that originated with Jesus. If you read the scriptures, you will see that he's really good at pissing people off. And he pisses people off on purpose so they can see what's in their hearts. And this is one of those passages we're talking about today. Now, far be it from the Lord to ever want to piss you off so much that what's in your heart might be exposed. But I think I'm pretty sure if he did it then, he's doing it now because he stays the same. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes while I just read this passage, and then you can open them and we'll go through it. It'll be up on the, on the overhead. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Okay, you can open your eyes now. This is one of those stories about Jesus that I love because it's jarring. 
First of all, it's hard to understand what the heck is going on in the synagogue when they're praising his preaching and then they want to kill them. Please don't do that to me, ever. But, you know, it's kind of understandable. If somebody, anybody, gets up in front of you and speaks as if he knows exactly what's going on and exactly what you ought to do, isn't your immediate reaction kind of like, whoa, wait a minute, mister, you don't know me, I don't know you, like, no. Well, it's even worse than that here. So let's take a look. Now, Luke puts this passage at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not chronologically, by the way. Jesse said a couple of weeks ago, Luke is going to take some liberties with chronology. And this is one of those places where he does that. This actually happens about a year into Jesus' ministry. But Luke puts it at the front because it sets the theme for what Luke wants to talk about in the next several chapters. And the big theme is, who is Jesus? That's the theme that he's trying to get at. So, between verses 13 and 14, from where Fran left off last week and I begin this week, a whole lot of things have happened. Jesus and the first four chapters of John take place. During this year of ministry, he's been introduced by John the Baptist as the Messiah, as the Christ. He's called some, if not all, of his disciples. He's cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, at least for the first time. No, no, turning over tables and things like that, making a ruckus. He proclaimed the gospel in Samaria, where the woman at the well episode happens, and where she got saved and started telling her whole town about Jesus. When he returned to Galilee, which is the county, basically, where Nazareth is. Nazareth is his hometown, and Galilee is kind of like the county where that town is. A nobleman approached Jesus while his son was still ill in Capernaum. Remember, the crowd said, why don't you do here what you did in Capernaum? And he asked Jesus to heal his son from a distance, which Jesus had done. So all that has happened before this episode. In just one year, Jesus had done some pretty amazing things. But more importantly, according to Luke, he had preached some pretty amazing things. And so there was this great expectation before he arrives back in his hometown. It's like the favorite son has come home. Excitement was high. And this is the interesting thing. What catches people's interest is his teaching. They praise him. This word is a Greek word called uh, doxazo. It's uh, usually used in reference to God, praise to God. So folks were already making the connection that Jesus had come from God in some kind of a special way in terms of his teaching. He was teaching in a way they weren't used to. He taught with authority, the Scriptures told us, like he knew what he was saying. Like I said earlier, the guy who knows it all. And what's going to kind of set the stage for his entire ministry in the county of Galilee is that people are going to be amazed at his teaching, but they're not going to flock to him there. There's going to be low numbers compared to what will happen later in other parts of Israel. So let's go to uh, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and just emphasize, as was his custom. Jesus went to the synagogue every Saturday like a good Jew. 
Now, what comes to my mind is, why would God the Father have Jesus go to church every single week? It's not like he could learn anything new. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking Jesus is sitting in the synagogue mentally correcting what is being spoken from the front. You know, this is one of the terrible things about being a preacher. Whenever you go to other churches, you are analyzing the sermon from a homiletic viewpoint. Like, well, I wouldn't have done the introduction that way. Or, um, you know, ah, that illustration was kind of weak. And no, he's, this is too long of an excursion in the historical, cultural background. He's going to lose everybody. That's what goes through my head. And Jesus humbles himself and goes to church every week. I have people my age who have given up on church. They've been Christians their whole entire lives. They came to Christ during the Jesus Revolution of the 60s and the 70s, and they're burnt out on church. They don't need church anymore. Oh, i got my Christian friends. i got my favorite preachers in the radio or TV, and I can read my Bible during my devotions, and they're just not going. I'm going, okay, fine. But Jesus kept going to church. What would Jesus do? He would go to church. And just let me say that if we're going to say what would Jesus do, we also need to say what would Jesus not do. That's a lesson the church needs to learn. I think sometimes more than what would Jesus do. Because we do some pretty terrible things in Jesus' name. So let's get a WW. NJD, or whatever, WJWMD, whatever, you know, you got it. You can tell that's not in the notes. So Jesus stands up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Then he unrolls it. And he finds the place where he's going to read from. Now, the way things went in Jewish synagogues at that time, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men present in order to have a service. And they would uh, read the Shema from Deuteronomy. They would read from the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible. And then uh, they would also, they, sometimes they had some prayers. They would do uh, things that had been handed down, the 18... Um, de uh, benedictions, whatever it was that they would actually do. And then they would kind of let it open and a person could read from the prophets wherever they wanted to. And then you were kind of expected after you read to tie in what you just read with the other readings and prayers that had been gone on during the service. And so they would have like a little sermon there. And so that's what's going on now. So Jesus is the favorite son of Nazareth. He's back a lot of hoopla, and as a kind of a, a token of esteem, they let him take the scroll and read. They didn't have bindings of books back then. You know, they had scrolls, which they still use in synagogues. You ever go to a synagogue and you look on the wall of the sanctuary, there's a big cabinet, usually ornate. If you opened up the doors of that cabinet, you would see a giant scroll which is the Torah. And um, how do I know this? Well, I grew up with a lot of Jewish friends. And so my, my buddy Neil, Neil Shafel, was having a bar mitzvah, so he invited me to his bar mitzvah, which is wonderful. But being Greek, my mom's late dropping me off at the synagogue. So she drops me off, and I run up the steps of the synagogue. I go into the foyer, and nobody's there. Everybody's already inside the sanctuary, and I'm wondering, I don't know what to do, where to go. I don't know what to think, you know. So one young guy, a little bit older than me, walks in then behind me. He goes to this bin where they have these little skull caps, these yarmulkes. He puts one on his head. Then he goes to another bin, and he pulls out these prayer shawls, and he puts it over his shoulders, and he walks in. And so I figure that's what you must do. If you're a young guy. So I went and I got a yarmulke. I put it on my head. And I got a prayer shawl and I put it over my shoulders. I walk into the sanctuary. And just like in Protestant, American, Greek Orthodox churches, wherever you are, the back fills up first. Like if you want a back seat, come early. 
The only ones open are the ones in the front. And so I have to walk all the way down <laughs> this slanting aisleway, and I, I sit in the very first row. Pretty soon the service begins, or it's actually already begun, but the doors open and Neil walks in with two rabbis. They're walking across the floor, and then one of the rabbis makes a beeline for me and says, come here. And I'm going, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm trying to explain. No, no, you don't. I don't, I don't know. He goes, come on, come on. Everybody's looking at you. Come on. And being an obedient kid, one of those kind of firstborns who does what they're told, I said, okay. And so next thing I know, I'm on top of the stage, and I'm being guided over to this giant cabinet where the rabbis hand me the sacred scrolls. Now, they get a clue that I don't know what the heck I'm doing. And so pretty soon, they start to guide me, and, you know, I finally take it over to this table and an altar thing, you know, where I set it down, and I go and sit. And then Neil reads from the scroll in Hebrew because it's his bar mitzvah. He becomes a son of the law, bar mitzvah. Meanwhile, I can hear his mother, like, laughing back somewhere in the back of the synagogue. I mean, I don't know if, if, if the rabbis ever found out that these goyim hands touched. These Gentile hands were carrying the sacred scrolls. But that's what's going on here. And Jesus is being asked to read because he had gone through a bar mitzvah and he knew what he was doing. Okay? All right. And this is what Jesus says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down. And he begins his sermon. He begins his sermon by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Basically, this passage about the coming Messiah, the guy who's going to make everything right, it's me. That's what is going on here. He is claiming to be the one who's going to put everything to rights in Israel. Israel that's under Roman domination. Israel that has never really done the year of Jubilee the way they were supposed to. Jesus is going to come. He's going to put everything right. He is going to do what they haven't done as a nation. He's going to cancel debts. He's going to restore ancestral lands. He's going to proclaim freedom for an imprisoned people, for people who are oppressed. He's going to bring spiritual light I mean, these are fantastic claims to go to the messianic passages of the Old Testament and say, I'm it, it's me, I'm here, right now, hello. Now, Jesus refers to the pious poor. They're called the anawim in, in Hebrew. It's one of those words they drill into you when you go to seminary. The righteous poor, the anawim. Because the righteous poor, the pious poor, are open to God in ways that the rich never can be open. They're frequently the first to recognize how much they need God. And Jesus preaches to the poor who are pious so that in reaching out to them, He is someone who can identify with them. I mean, they have in their minds this grand, regal, elite Messiah who's going to come in a military way and throw off Roman rule. And Jesus is saying, no, uh, uh this is the way it's going to happen. I'm both prophet and Messiah. I'm telling you how it's going to happen and that it's happening now. This is revolutionary. Verse 22 says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now, 
They spoke well of him because he was saying some pretty cool stuff in pretty cool ways. But the word amazed here, we're not really sure if amazed means like, wow, that's cool. It may mean like, I am shocked and I don't know what to think. Could mean that as well. Because immediately they're saying, wait, 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 wait. Isn't this Joseph's son? The fact that Jesus was raised in that town as a son of Joseph the carpenter is too much for them. They cannot fit his ancestry with the grand claims about the Messiah from the prophets. And so they say, can you do here in your hometown what you've done in Capernaum? Like, give us something. Because, you know, we're Nazareth after all. In the Gospel of John, we hear this, this, this phrase that was common around the area. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, this would be like us saying, you know, can anything good come out of Greeley, Colorado? That's kind of where, like, Jesus is from Greeley. And they know they're Greeley. They know that they're Nazareth. And then he says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, which is a Greek proverb, a Gentile proverb, not really a, a, a Jewish one, although they incorporated it into their culture. Physician, heal yourself. And that makes me wonder. Was there something about Jesus that appeared as if it needed healing? Isaiah the prophet goes on to say that the Messiah, the suffering servant, will not be one that we look at and think, oh wow. Rather, he's somebody we're going to look at and we're going to consider him, maybe he's afflicted by God. Maybe, maybe, maybe God you know, is, is chastising him somehow. Like, it's not going to be as obvious as you think. They didn't realize that that passage was about the Messiah. But obviously it was. And so Jesus is so could there have been something physically about Jesus that wasn't quite right? I bet you never thought of that. Especially when every Hollywood movie shows Jesus as a very handsome white man. The townsfolk want him to show his stuff. It may suggest that though Jesus presents himself as one who can heal, they ironically believe that he is sick in some sense. Something needs to be verified. So please do the kinds of miracles we've heard you've done in Capernaum, a neighboring town. Here's where Jesus starts to piss them off more than he already has. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And he goes on with these stories about Elijah and Elisha. Now let me tell you about the t Israel and the time of Elijah and Elisha. Everybody knew it was like their darkest period in history, spiritually. That they had bad kings, they weren't following God, they were worshiping idols. You know, it's kind of like, as a Christian, if you think about the Crusades as a fairly dark spiritual time and we were trying to use military might to do God's will, they're looking back at that time in, in Israel's history as the same kind of a period. And here Jesus is, and he's basically saying, you're just like those people. You don't have a clue. You think they were bad? You're bad. Let me tell you what God was doing. Things were so bad in Israel at that time that God sent the prophets to help people who weren't even Jewish. They were Arab. Sidon is in modern-day Lebanon. And Syria is right about where Syria is today. So... 
Elijah helps a widow in Lebanon, and Elisha cures a enemy general in the Syrian army from leprosy. This guy had already been on campaigns conquering parts of Israel because he had a Jewish slave. If you go back and read the stories. And so Jesus is saying, you guys are in bad shape. And he basically says, not only are you like the worst period in Israel's spiritual history, but he also says that the Gentiles, your enemies, are more worthy of ministry from God than you are. This is what pisses him off. And so they go to throw him over the cliff on which the city was built. Now, it's not the kind of cliff you may think of having lived in the Rocky Mountains. We're not like talking about 2,000-foot drops. It's a mountainous region, and it's rocky, so probably what's going to happen is they're going to throw him off a somewhat high embankment, not that high, and once he's down on the ground, they're going to pick up stones, and they're going to stone him to death for being a false prophet. The stoning begins with throwing the criminal over the cliff and then hurling rocks nearly the size of a person's head on top of the victim. You kind of aim for the chest, but at that distance with those kinds of rocks, you know, you could hit them anywhere. Here's the weird thing. This gets ironic because it's a Sabbath. I mean, you're supposed to kill people on the Sabbath? You're not even supposed to lift a rock on the Sabbath. And what's more is they were under the domination of Rome, and Rome said, no, we're the only ones that can take life. And so they were going to do something illegal. By the way, by doing this, they ironically prove Jesus' point. <laughs> do they not? That you're just like your ancestors. But verse 30 says he walks right through the crowd and goes on his way. Now, I don't know what's going on. Maybe the Lord God throws the cloak of invisibility over him, which is the way I like to read it. It sounds like Lord of the Rings or comic books I had when I was a kid. I mean, just wonderful. You know, I have no idea. It could have been that they finally get a clue and go, wait a minute, we're going to stone one of our own kids? I mean, I'm upset that he's saying, you know, he's the Messiah when he's this kid that I watched grow up. Be kind of like one of us, you know, if, you know, in 20 years you're sitting in church and you're listening to, to, to Finn Heilman give a sermon, you know. I mean, that's what it's like. You're going like... What's this kid going to teach me? But, you know, I, I know his mom and dad, and I watch him grow up, and I don't have the heart to stone the kid to death. I don't know. I'm going to say right now, we will never stone Finn Heilman to death. Okay? Just in case you ever get pissed off at Finn. <laughs> Or maybe it's his attitude that silences them. Maybe God just sends giant angels to come and part the crowd like Moses parted the Red Sea. I don't know what's going on. But the scripture is pretty clear. His hour had not yet come. He had a destiny with death. And it was a couple years away. All right. So what do I get out of this passage? I have some questions. The first question I have is, what is the church? What is the church? And, and I think that what we can tell from this passage, that the church should be a place of good teaching. 
Jesus was bringing some pretty solid teaching to synagogues all around the, the county. And it was not something they were used to. So Jesus endorses good teaching in church when he teaches in the synagogue. He took 12 disciples. He taught them for three years, night and day. He had other disciples besides that. There were, there were 72 disciples beyond that that he was teaching, and even more people outside of that group. And he was teaching them the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, all those different sermons, parables that we're going to be reading about. Teaching is important to Jesus. And so the church should be a place of teaching. This is why we do this at SCUM almost every Sunday. It's because the church should be a place of good teaching. Now also, the church's call is to reach out to people. Jesus is reaching out to folks. He's bringing them in who never came into the synagogue before. He's taking sermons out into the countryside, on the streets, wherever he goes. He is extending the borders of the synagogue to include those people who would never come. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the other sinners. So let's never forget that our job is to keep spreading the good news about Jesus. That's what he was doing. That's what we should do. And it's really great that we do it to the kinds of people Jesus is talking about. Scum of the Earth's focus really has never been the cool people. I'm sorry if you're cool and you're here and you didn't realize you're with a bunch of nerds and geeks and broken people, but that's what we are. We don't advertise. We don't even have a sign on the outside of the building. And that's on purpose. We want the folks here that God draws here by word of mouth, like in the old days, you know, before billboards and television commercials and radio spots. I'm not saying we'll never do that or that that's wrong. I'm just saying we do things for a reason, and we don't do things for a reason. We want to reach out to those who know they need God. One more time. No, we do want them to prosper in all the ways that are important, spiritually, number one. Because what Jesus is talking about is freedom. He's talking about jubilee. Jubilee in the mindset of ancient Israel was a time when God put everything right. Total release from all enemies and debt it describes salvation. The books are wiped clean. All legal, legal obligations are removed. Grace comes in. There's a new way of seeing so that life from the old perspective is now appreciated as darkness and blindness in light of the gospel. According to this passage, the church now must care about the oppressed Yes, Jesus focuses less on changing societal structures and governmental structures, and Jesus cares more about the individual and releasing individuals from being oppressed. We have to be honest about sin as a result of that. You can't talk about freedom from oppression without talking about being released from the bondage of sin. And that's going to get us into trouble at Scum of the Earth Church because we're going to talk about freedom from sin. Sin brings death. 
Jesus brings life. And as a result, if we're rejected by the culture, it's okay. Sometimes rejection is a mark of success, as in Jesus' case here. I think churches that are very successful in the eyes of the world, big buildings, big budgets, lots of people, I think they've got to be careful. They don't, don't get sucked into the way the world views success. I'm going to read this verbatim. The risk of the church is that we will become selective in our choice of sins or set on a decidedly negative tone as we risk becoming defensive in the face of a hostile culture. When the world begins to reject us, we still keep open hands and an open heart. We still keep a merciful attitude and a loving embrace for those who will come to Jesus. There are churches, and you hear about them on the news, that maintain this fortress mentality. Let's close the gates. Let's fill them up with alligators. And we're going to shoot arrows from the ramparts, and we're going to pour hot boiling oil on anybody who comes close to destroy us. I don't want to ever have that attitude. The second question I think this passage asks is, who am I? Who am I? When Jesus enters your life, things begin to change. They just do. Whether you want them to or not, Jesus loves you so much that he will accept you just the way you are but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And so he will begin to make some changes in your life. This comes as a shock to people who are your friends, but may not want to change along with you. Let me read 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5. This is the Apostle Peter now. Remember, he's been taught by Jesus for years, night and day. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so, as you begin to change in light of Jesus' gospel, your friends may make you pay for that. It's a turning point. Jesus came back to Nazareth. They didn't want him to change that much. Your friends are going to treat you the same way. People may not want you to change, and they don't want you to change because it means they will have to change. So easier not to have you as a friend anymore and reject you. I'm talking about the people who know you best, maybe members of your own family. They do not want to feel condemned by your lifestyle. You may not even have to utter one word about Jesus, but they'll be able to tell. I've said this before, but just refrain from toking up with a group of friends who are getting high on, on weed. Let's see what happens. Now here's the weird thing. When it comes to romance, or when it comes to friendships, we're attracted to people who usually are not asking us to grow. 
sometimes we're attracted to people because they have strengths that we don't have. I'm going to hang around you because you're outgoing, and you will find all the friends for me, so if I stay close to you, I will have friends. Or if you're in a relationship with someone romantically, I love you because you're so organized. My life is everywhere and scattered all over, but you have lists. I couldn't make a If I made a list, by some miracle, I would forget to go down it and check things off. And so you're attracted to people who are different than you because they have strengths that you don't have. Now, as you know, if you've been married, that only works about as far as your dating life goes. It starts to get a little weird when you're engaged. And when you get married, all of a sudden that's not working anymore because, you know, the people who love spontaneity drive you crazy because you like things in order and plenty of time to get ready. But you were attracted to them because they had their ducks in a row and they worked by schedule and they were attracted to you because you're so spontaneous and fun and exciting. And then you try and meld those two lives together and it's, it's difficult. And that happens in friendships as well. After a while you want to tell your friend, can you please get a life and quit like hanging on me like some kind of parasite? You're a leech. Problems happen when you upset the dysfunctional relationship by growing. If you begin to change in the direction Jesus wants you to go, all of a sudden the relationship doesn't work the way it used to. <laughs> I used to be able to intimidate Mary by raising my voice and using my logic and arguing her into a corner. When she went to counseling and started getting healed, that didn't work anymore, and I did not know what to do to get my way. When one person begins to grow, the dysfunction doesn't work anymore. We need to ask ourselves, is there anybody in my heart that I don't want God to bless? Because for the Jews in Jesus' time, talking about those Arabs, those Gentiles, those Greeks, as somebody that needed to be blessed by the Lord was reprehensible. Bill Hybel says that uh, he's a pastor of a large church in Chicago. He says, we have never locked eyes with anyone who did not matter to God. You have never locked eyes with anyone who did not matter to God. Charles Wendell, another preacher, said, You can tell a lot about people by the way they treat those who can do nothing for them. So Jesus is calling us to become different people. Who are you? It's changing if you're following Jesus. It ought to be changing if we are following Jesus. And the last question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Which is the question we started out with. I think we need to be aware of false familiarity. In other words, we think we know Jesus... But we know the Jesus that we've created in our head. I think God is like the continual iconoclast. He is always shattering our images of Him because they become idolatrous. As soon as we think we know what God is like, He begins to destroy that image we have in our head about what He's like because it never is big enough. It's never loving enough. It's never merciful enough. That's what he does over and over again. He smashes our idols, even our idols of him. 
We need to know him as he's revealed both in the Old and New Testaments. If you don't read the Old Testament, then you are not getting the total character of Jesus or of God. You cannot understand mercy unless you read the Old Testament. If you read about the righteousness that God demands, and then you talk about Jesus, you're going, Whoa! God is amazing. We need to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. I don't know about you, but most people I know, including myself, were offended by the fact that Christians said that we needed the good news. I was offended that Christians would dare say I was not that together. That they had something that I needed, namely Jesus. I thought they were crazy. I thought, you guys are so messed up. You need your religion because you're so messed up. And here's the weird thing. I thought I knew who Jesus was. I was wrong. But if I had been able to see Jesus clearly, I would have rejected him anyway just like they did in this story. Because I hate the spotlight he would put on my sin. I knew I would have to change some things, and I didn't want to change. And Jesus wants me to get pissed off at him. He provokes us. Intentionally, he offends us by bringing stuff up so we can see what's in our hearts. He offends our minds so that what's in our hearts come bubbling to the surface so that finally we can see we're not all that. We're broken. We're needy. We're whimpering fools who need a Savior. So Jesus is faithful to piss us off. I remember being with a group of uh, pastors who told me I needed to forgive somebody that I said I was merely just not ready to forgive. Les Avery, my 80-year-old friend, pointed his bony finger in my face and said, Mike, if you don't forgive that man, God's not going to forgive you. And I wanted to say, back off, Les. I'm just not ready. The hurt's too deep. I left that lunch. I had to pull over on the side of the road. I was so angry. I'm yelling at God, going, I'm not ready. Jesus made sure that this stuff came up. He's going, you know what, Mike? I, I'm going to make sure you're hot or cold. You're not going to stay lukewarm about this because I am out to reveal myself to you. You're going to come closer to me, and I'm going to use this thing. We are spiritually poor, but we cannot be enriched until we let go of the little bit of decrepit spirituality we're actually holding on to and accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. We can't be free until we realize that we're imprisoned. We can't see until we come out of the dark and into the light. We can't be healed until we know we're sick and we come to Him for healing. Jesus will not let us sit on the fence. He demands that we make up our minds about him. He wants us to care about him, to have strong feelings about him. If you can't get love, he'll take hate, because there's a thin line between love and hate. He wants us to make a decision about him. I'm going to close with one of the most well-known quotes by C.S. Lewis. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We're going to take communion tonight. If you consider Jesus your Lord, you are free to participate. And as you take communion tonight, I ask that you would beg Him for fresh eyes to see Him as He really is. To let go of the idols of His image you've already made in your head. We'll have a group of people back there in that little brown prayer room if you'd like to pray with somebody because you're going to come to Jesus for the very first time and hand over your life to Him or because you want to make things new with Jesus. You want to strip away the things that have been keeping you away from knowing Him as He truly is. Then feel free to come by. I mean, these are nice people. They'll pray with you. You'll be like two beggars going where you know there is bread to be found together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take the truth of the words of Jesus and sear them deep into our hearts, brand them on the walls of our hearts. Never let us forget that he is Lord and Savior. He has come to set the captives free, proclaim recovery of sight for the blind, the year of acceptance by God, freedom for the oppressed. It's in his name we pray. Amen.